We all want to believe that hard work is the reason for our success. It's hard to admit that you got a leg up when you feel like you put in a lot of effort to get where you are. But the reality is, the workplace isn't a level playing field. This is Game Plan. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Francesca Levy. And this week we're talking about meritocracy and why that is such an appealing narrative and also why it's not real. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So before we get into it, I think we need to define meritocracy, which is this idea that the people who work the hardest and have the most talents will succeed based on their merits. Meritocracy. (laughs) Thanks for that etymology. Yeah, it is super appealing. If you're a company, you can kind of look around at older systems where people got ahead because of who they know or because they went to the right fancy private schools. And you can say, well, that's clearly unfair. Let me put something into place where everyone is free to submit an idea to upper management. And then we'll just look at all those ideas and the best idea will rise to the top. And it has nothing to do with who you are. So it's a really nice way of feeling like you've cleared up all those pesky sort of issues of bias and advantage. Yeah, I think we've worked in places where you look around and you say that person is where they are because of how they were born. Yeah, there. <laughs> it's definitely kind of demoralizing whenever you work around other people who you know have only kept their jobs or only risen to their level because, you know, they had the right allies in the company or they are just somehow too important to fire or they, you know, long ago got some advantage and they just sort of rode their status to the top. And you're here just trying to make it on the value of your hard work and your ideas or so you think. And then if you work in a meritocracy, you can tell yourself that the reason for your successes was your hard work And that nothing else got you to where you are. So it feels pretty good on a personal level, too. Yeah. So that's why the idea looks so good to both management and workers. But I think that that idea is false, and we're going to get into that more. But I think before we get into it, it's interesting to look back at the history of meritocracy. And it started in Silicon Valley, which should not be a surprise because Silicon Valley is still very obsessed with this idea But I found that the founder of Intel, when he was going to start a company, as you mentioned, he was trying to get away from all these old systems that he thought were unfair, and he didn't want a top-down hierarchy, so he decided to create his company as a meritocracy that awarded people's ideas and not their status in the company or how many years they've been working at the company. Yeah, and you're right. Silicon Valley is still totally obsessed with this idea. I think maybe because a lot of the substance of the work feels like tangible things you can measure like you know it's computer code it's it's not emotional it's not about relationships we just we take the best code and we make the best programs and i mean i'm simplifying tech here obviously <laughs> You're obviously a coder yeah really um but you can you can say uh you have some basis on which to say look anybody can start their own app these days people start companies with very little money all the time so You know, we've really created a world here in Silicon Valley where um, the best ideas succeed, not the, you know, most advantaged people. Yeah. And the heroes of Silicon Valley are people who people point to and say, look, they didn't go to college or they didn't finish college or they came from nothing. They're not part of these dynasties. And so they're proof that the meritocracy 
is working. But even when you look at that idea, that turns out to be false. So one of these heroes is this guy, Max Levchin, who, among other things, he founded Yelp. He's very, very wealthy. Um, and people point to him as saying, like, look, he was an immigrant. His parents came here. They had, I think, the lore is $300 in their pocket. And now their son is the successful entrepreneur. But in an interview, he himself said that that is not true and that he did have certain advantages Specifically, that his parents really told him that they need that he needed to learn a skill, and they came with educational backgrounds, and they told him education was important. And he said, without that, he wouldn't have thought that he could have succeeded. So, right there, there's something that, on its face, looks like somebody rising to the top just because of the value of his work. And actually, there's a lot more to it. And it's pretty easy to pick apart that idea more broadly in Silicon Valley because you can just look around and see um, it's not a very diverse place. I think one of the most obvious indicators that this meritocracy idea isn't working in Silicon Valley is that pretty much the same people rise to the top through a meritocracy as would through a more traditional system, a more traditional hierarchy. And there are plenty of people who think that's fine. You know, they say, look, if we take away the barriers or if we seem to be taking away the barriers by just giving everybody the same access, then it shouldn't matter, you know, the race or gender or economic background of the people who tend to make it. But then there are other ways of looking at it where you say, look, if the only people who can make it are still, you know, people from pretty affluent backgrounds who tend to be white and tend to be male, then you might want to reevaluate how merit based your system really is. Yeah, and slowly some companies and people in Silicon Valley are starting to see that the system isn't really a level playing field. We talked to someone who used to believe in meritocracy until he very recently changed his mind. Ryan Carson is the CEO of Treehouse, a coding school based in Portland, Oregon. He changed his company's practices and entire outlook on education after realizing the system wasn't as fair as he thought. You're now the CEO of your own company. Um, you have 80 employees. You've raised over $12 million. How did you get to where you are now? Uh, well, I grew up in Colorado, and uh, I was exposed to computers early. I um, was privileged in that sense, and I got interested in coding uh, when I was in ninth grade because I was lucky to have a teacher uh, say to me, Hey, Ryan, have you uh, ever heard of this thing where you tell the computer what to do? And I thought, what? <laughs> that sounds amazing. And uh, she said, yeah, it's called programming. And uh, we had a, a class at my school. Um, so I took it and fell in love and uh, then went on to study computer science at Colorado State and graduated in the year 2000. And um, I decided that uh, I wanted some adventure in my life. So I moved to England and didn't know a soul, which was exciting. And uh, got a job as a developer. And then that's when this realization kind of struck me that uh, my, my degree didn't relate to what I was doing in my job. And that bothered me. And so fast forward seven years uh, later, uh, I actually started a company to, to solve that problem. So got involved in this idea of, hey, let's empower people by teaching them technology and all this was founded upon this idea that uh, tech is a meritocracy. Yeah. At what point did you realize the tech world wasn't a meritocracy? It was about a year ago. And so, um, you know, I'm a white male. Uh, I'm straight. I'm tall. I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm educated. I grew up in a middle to high income family. I just have so much privilege. And I didn't really 
see that truly. You know, I thought, hey, you know, I'm lucky. Some things have gone my way. Um, but but uh, on the whole, you know, I've worked hard. I've learned how to code. I've gotten to where I am uh, because I've kind of pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And what I realized is that um, that is just not true. <laughs> I have a tremendous amount of chips, you know, stacked in my favor. And the reason why I found this out is because uh, about a year ago, I signed the diversity pledge here in Portland. And it basically is a group of companies uh, that's, that are agreeing to lean in and try to uh, work on the problem of diversity in tech and inclusion. And I entered that, that group, you know, thinking, hey, I, I basically, um, you know, I'm super moral. Uh, I, I, I'm definitely not sexist. I'm definitely not racist. And I just want to help. Um, and, and I run a school that teaches technology. It's super affordable. It's online. So, you know, all people have to do is, is use a school like Treehouse to learn how to code. And then they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, too. Um, and then I actually talked uh, to people of color and women in depth uh, to say, why are we having this problem? Like, I, I really don't get it. Help me understand. And... One of the most brutal conversations I had uh, was with a guy in Boston who said, Ryan, uh, let me put it like this. He said, you know, you coming into our community uh, as a white guy with a computer science degree, you know, we're all black. And you're telling us, hey, you can get a job in tech. You know, you can learn. You don't need a college degree uh, is just like the white preachers who came into the projects and tried to plant churches and told uh, the community that they had something that they needed. You know, they had a solution to their problems. And he, he said, Ryan, I don't trust you. Like, I don't know you. You don't look like me. Um, you know, why, why should I believe you? Um, and why do you think you have something that I need? And that was really humbling. Um, and I think it just opened my eyes to how insane the idea is that, um, everybody grew up like me and has the the access and the desire and the role models. You describe this period where you believed in meritocracy and then kind of a turning point that you had where you realized, like, were you having problems that led you to this kind of, you know, pivotal conclusion that changed everything? Yes. So, you know, at Treehouse, we have 80,000 students um, and and I and I my if I believed it was a meritocracy, then we should see a ton of people of color and women coming out of our program. And we just weren't. Um, and so it was kind of a slap in the face that I don't understand, you know, why Treehouse is only 25 bucks a month. Like this seems so affordable. You don't have to go to college. Like why? And uh, and it was just I felt, you know, absolutely baffled by it. And uh, in hindsight, it's so obvious to me that it's almost embarrassing. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I'm so glad I see it now. This idea of meritocracy is so ingrained in the technology world. Have you run up against people who are just disagree with you? Um, yes, all the time. And and uh, I, I was actually on a, a big podcast the other day, and I don't want to name names, but, um, you know, they basically said, I don't get it. You know, are you sure this isn't a meritocracy? Why can't people just work harder and hustle and, and teach themselves? And um, I just had to say what I've been saying over and over again. Uh, they weren't raised like you. I, I think it's 
mostly white men that believe this, uh, like myself, and I can speak like that because I'm a white guy uh, who grew up, you know, in a basically rich family with a, with a college degree. So I think almost every uh, uh, white male that you run into probably believes this. And some of us are beginning to, you know, shake off those shackles and realize it's just not true and we should be a part of the solution. So once you came to realize all this, how, how did you address it? What were the solutions that you started to apply at your company? So the the first thing, the, the main message I heard from uh, folks that I was talking to who were people of color or women was that it didn't work for me to go and speak to, the, to them as a group and say, hey, there's a job for you. You know, it pays really well. You don't need a college degree. They needed to hear that message from people like them that they trusted. So the first thing we did was we partnered with the Boys and Girls Club. And we said, would you be willing to give this good news uh, to kids in your program that are, that are um, coming out of high school um, that there are companies that will hire them if they're willing to put in, you know, six months of effectively night school. Um, and they said, you bet, we would love to do that. And I think there's countless community-based organizations that we could partner with. You know, there's churches, there's uh, Black Girls Who Code, there's, I mean, name any community-based organization that has the trust of women or people of color, and, and they could do that. And then I, I, I did the work of going to employers and saying, okay, you say that you want to hire diverse folks. Are you actually willing to invest in those people? Um, and what I mean by invest, are you willing to pay for their education? Um, are you willing to uh, mentor them? Are you willing to hire them as apprentices instead of you know demanding that you hire mid to senior level people? If you're willing to do that, you could be a part of the solution. And it was really actually encouraging um, how quickly I got yeses. So Nike said yes. Uh, Envision, which is a great design tool, said yes. Um, a, a couple other Portland-based companies said yes. Uh, Treehouse, we're, ourselves, were saying yes, we're going to hire out of this program. So once you have employers who are willing to invest and hire apprentices, and that's the key, they need to stop demanding that they can hire you know, mid to senior level people. Um, and then it takes uh, community-based organizations to spread the good news and to recruit. And then it takes a, you know, a school like Treehouse or a, another school to be the education piece um, that's affordable. Um, once you get that going, I, I, we're starting to see that this is actually um, you know, a very primitive beginning um, to, the, uh, to the answer to this solution. It, it's not working exactly correctly. You know, we're learning things. Some things aren't going correctly. Uh, but so far, it's, it's um, exciting. And I, I can't wait to see how this first class does. Yeah. How many people are in the class and how long have you been doing it? And have any of them landed jobs? Uh, it's a small um, trial. So it's uh, 12 folks are in the class. Um, they're all Latinx, which is interesting. Um, I think it was just kind of um, the luck of the draw as far as the Boys and Girls Club uh, in Portland and who they were recruiting. Um, they are currently going through the program. They're about two months in. Um, and, you know, the employers were all really excited. <laughs> um, and uh, the uh, the class is doing well. This It is not without its challenges. I mean, you know, these folks are some of the hardest working people I've ever met. Um, 
But, you know, some of these folks are working 50 hours a week plus learning on Treehouse. And, you know, they're getting paid, you know, barely minimum wage. Um, a lot of them have challenges with their families where, um, you know, for instance, a mother-in-law has, you know, kicked them out of the house because uh, of various issues. And they're trying to make it on their dad's couch, you know, at work. You know, there's significant challenges. Um, but even with that, we're seeing um, a lot of hope and a lot of uh, hard work and a lot of excitement. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited. We're, you know, we're going to learn. It's not going to work perfectly. And that's exactly the point. Like, we can't fix diversity and inclusion in, you know, one program in one year. It'll take, you know, years and years of hard work. You mentioned that some of your students have trouble balancing their jobs, their work week with with coding school. And I thought it was interesting that you talk about these issues of access. You know, Treehouse is affordable, but at the same time, it's it's a luxury to be able to devote time to something, even at night, if you have, you know, a full-time job and, let's say, childcare or family responsibilities. And I, I wonder if there are other examples of things like that that became apparent to you once your eyes were open to how not level this playing field is. Yes, and big eye openings with uh, what women have to deal with. Um, I think it was just by really listening to folks like Susan Fowler at Uber and and then talking to more women and saying, is this like common? This totally insane, disgusting behavior. And over and over, people, women saying, yes. Yeah, of course it is. I've been dealing with this stuff my whole life. And, 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 and being shocked by that. But then over and over hearing it to the point where I had to believe it. One thing we did at Treehouse is we anonymized our, our job application. So there's no name. There's no, there's no indication of age or, or, or race or gender or anything. And um, what was brutal is that we actually started hiring more women when we did that. And I, I know it's and it's sad, isn't it? I mean, it, it's it's like, hey, aren't we, aren't we okay here? Aren't we not sexist? But it it proves almost everybody has hidden biases, um, and you have to systematically root them out, um, and, and not just say, oh, we think we're okay because you're probably not. I just want to ask one last question, and we're talking a lot about getting in the door, being hired. And you wrote a post on Medium about Leslie Miley, who is um, one of the few black engineers at Twitter to rise up very high in the company, but he ultimately left because he couldn't figure out how to get the company to hire more people like him. So what do you think about that? What are you doing about that? Once you have these people at the companies, how do you make sure that the company is still inclusive? So you bring up a vital point. It, it really, what I'm learning is that it's a two-pillar uh, solution. And you can't just um, fix the talent pipeline. You also have to do massive inclusion training. Um, and so, you know, at Treehouse, we're, we're getting really aggressive about doing inclusion training, um, especially for managers. Uh, and, and what's interesting, though, is Google did this and it didn't work. I mean, look at James Damore, right? Uh, ugly, sexist behavior, right? That was... Uh, uh, unchecked, unnoticed, uh, and, and it wasn't rooted out. So it means that inclusion training uh, isn't enough. And so um, it's a, you know, 
the 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 tough answer is I don't know exactly you know, systematically how to fix this issue other than the CEO needs to identify it as a problem and fund it um, and aggressively work on it for years. Uh, Otherwise, nothing will change. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. No problem. Ryan said a lot about underrepresented groups and women and people of color and how they're treated differently in the workplace. And I think all of that stuff is really important, but before we go too far down the road of discrimination against certain groups, we should explain that the reason we're talking about that stuff in this specific context isn't so much just to to point out inequality. It's to say that there's all kinds of invisible things that you don't really see that can make the playing field uneven. And that has to do with you know, the group that you come from and the advantages and the access that you had. Yeah. Hearing him tell his story of his upbringing, he pointed out some of these things, but you could even hear some of the other things that helped him get where he is today. So, you know, he not only came from an upper middle class background and happened to go to college, but he said he had a mentor and he said that his school happened to teach computer science. I think all those little things are advantages that he had that other people didn't. Yeah, it just goes to show how far back you have to go to really be able to see all of the access points and entry points that you get toward, you know, what ends up being a good career. And, you know, if you set up a system at the end of it and you say all good ideas are welcome, I think the danger like a meritocracy is a good idea and we should all be working toward something that really feels fair that has, you know, where people are judged on their merit. But I think the danger is in setting up a system and then leaving it alone because you you think you've done enough because you've taken away the obvious barriers because there are so many more subtle barriers and they go way, way, way deep into our histories. So it's about creating those systems and then doing lots more to sort of reach back and find those other kind of hidden inequalities and, and try to level the playing field in other ways. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> It's like Ryan said, companies have to be willing to do it. Yeah. And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. You can call in with your own Half Big Take at 212-617-0166. Francesca, what is your too hot to handle opinion that you need to share? Um, this is nominally about office wear, I would like to I would like some help understanding, maybe from our male listeners, if you want to weigh in, why it seems like a lot of men don't understand the difference between a skirt and a dress. They're very distinct (laughs) items of clothing. I understand that men don't wear them, but it seems to me like the difference is really obvious. And it's not like, you know, it's not like being a man and not knowing the difference between like eyeliner and eyeshadow. Like it's not that obscure and they're super different. Okay. Okay. I think you need to back up and tell us why you think men don't know the difference. Because over the course of my adult life, dozens, maybe more hundreds, nay thousands. Okay. I don't know if I know thousands of men, but plenty of men have said things like nice dress when they meant nice skirt or the other way around. Yeah, I think it's happened to me now that you're saying it. It has. Yeah. yeah. It's happened. It has. So it must be true. It's 
It happens a lot. And then, actually, female listeners, and you, Rebecca, should try this. Ask a few of the men in your life. Challenge them to tell you the difference between a skirt and a dress. And I bet you will find a few of them don't know. By the way, if anybody doesn't know, a skirt only covers (laughs) the bottom half of your body. It seems obvious to us. But I, I guess it's just like, I'm trying to think of a male equivalent, like a thing that I... That we don't know? Well, the thing also, men wear that women don't wear that is very outward, that is very public. That I just feel like you should know as a man the difference between a skirt and a dress. Or as a man, as like an adult who's not a child who knows what clothing yeah. means. Also, I, I describe it as like a skirt as part of a two-piece outfit. Right. And a dress is like one dress is a whole piece outfit. of clothing. Yeah. So, yeah, you heard it here first, defining dress. Yeah, I expect to get a lot of angry uh, listener feedback on this from men who do know the difference. And um, just for the record, our our producer, Magnus, is a man, and he did correctly identify (laughs) the difference between a skirt and a dress. Becca, what's your half-big take? So we had a recent long weekend, and my half-big take is that if you stay in town for the long weekend, it feels longer. Amen to that, because I was in the city uh, all three days, and it went on forever. Must be nice, because I went on a trip. Lame. And yeah, you basically have to leave leave on the third day, so you don't really yep. get the day. There's all that travel time, plus it's just like activity-packed, which I think can make things feel shorter. Yeah, I'm right. <laughs> I'm right. But, that, but I, just, I like going away, so it's hard. Yeah, and it's like, I actually came back from the long weekend feeling like, Usually when people ask how your weekend was, like the 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 pithy refrain is like, mm, it was too short. And I was like, this weekend was kind of too long. Like I didn't. OK, even... OK, I get it. You stayed in town and had the greatest weekend. No, I stayed in rainy Brooklyn and found <laughs> ways to entertain my baby. I was ready to get back to work. OK. <laughs> <laughs> That's I just better. shamed you into hating your weekend. Uh. And this has been Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at RZ Greenfield. And I'm at Francesca today. If you have thoughts, Half Big Takes, or your opinion on skirts versus dresses, you can tweet at us. You can also leave us a voicemail at 212-617-0166. If you want to hear from us more often, and I know you do, you should sign up for our newsletter. You can find it at Bloomberg.com slash newsletters. You have to scroll down, find the game plan one, check the box, and then you'll get it. It's really not as hard as she's making it sound. I just want to make sure you know how to do it. Another thing that's really easy, if you like our show, is to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Give us a rating, give us a review, and just help support what we do and get it in front of more people. This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Fine, I'll do that, but it's annoying. That's just annoying. I have to go downstairs and get a tea bag and go back upstairs and get my tea. Can't you just get hot water? Oh, get hot water. And bring it down? Yes, I can do that.